Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. I want to share a great interview today with you that took place between myself and Jordan from the uh, Revivalists for Christ podcast. You can find him on YouTube, and I'll put a link for it in the description of this episode. But it's a great interview, very encouraging. Uh, We talked about the Trinity. We talked about the Incarnation. We talked about eternal security, salvation. It's actually quite a lot of really relevant topics. So if these kind of things interest you, Then I hope you enjoy, and it's a blessing for you. Make sure you subscribe for more content like this, and let's go to it. What's up, church family? Welcome back to the Revivalist for Christ channel. I'm your host, Jordan, and we are back with another great guest today. We have Tudor Alexander. Tudor, welcome to the channel. Hey, what's up, dude? I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Now, guys, I have to apologize ahead of time. I have to apologize to Tudor, you guys, myself, because I confused everybody. <laughs> so uh, I just told a bunch of viewers that were already in the chat we didn't start for two more hours. Guys, it's been a rough couple of weeks, but Tudor, you have been amazing despite the craziness that is my life at the moment. So I do appreciate you coming on. We've all been there. We've all been there. With me. <laughs> So hopefully we'll start to pull some of those people back and they'll be like, Jordan, what? But for those who are not familiar with who you are, Tudor, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, your testimony, and your calling into ministry? Yeah, so I have kind of a diverse background. I was um, a professional ballroom dancer competing across the country for many years, teaching people, uh, competing, you know, doing all the things that you would do as a pro ballroom dancer, (laughs) just going on the news, doing commercials, all kinds of just fancy stuff. And um, then, you know, it kind of merged into personal growth. You know, I started writing books. Um, I wanted wanted more fulfillment out of what I was doing. And especially with dancing, it had kind of taught me some some unique perspectives. I saw how movement in general was just ultimately now you look back at it and say, okay, now I see what God was doing. But it basically I saw how movement was God's laws were reflected in spiritual ways too, like things like balance, alignment, you know, all these things that I studied as a movement specialist. I realized how they related to life and I wanted to help people do, you know, do better at life at that time. I wasn't born again. And so, you know, I wanted to get into personal growth, uh, growth coaching, entrepreneurism, writing books, all this kind of stuff, making courses, you know, the, the rat race of, <laughs> of the personal growth pyramid. Uh, and so I did that, you know, for several years. I've written actually my fifth book now, but now my last two books have been Christian books. So I'm, I'm a little more happy with that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just then I had a podcast. I started a podcast five years ago and it just all kind of evolved. And then ultimately um, that whole rat race burned me out is basically how I came to Christ. It was It was a gradual process, but there was some things that happened. Uh, I lost all my money in like a scam. And then I uh, basically had nothing. I hit rock bottom. And one of my good friends, Ruben, he's a he's a speaker. And he has this saying, is it's like, you know, when you hit, I'm probably going to butcher this saying, but it's so good. You know, if you, once you hit rock bottom, you know that God is that rock at the bottom, you know? And oh, wow. Yeah it's, yeah, it's great. And it's so true. And that's what happened with me. I mean, I <clears throat> declared bankruptcy. I lost my car. You know, I basically... Had a lot of things change very quickly overnight. Um, but in that process, I was able to come back to Christ. And there were some other things that had happened over the course of my uh, 
life in the last, especially last three or four years that culminated in that experience. And, you know, ever since then, it's just been a journey. And it's so funny. I was really on fire in the beginning to turn my podcast into, oh, let's do Christian stuff now. Now I can serve the Lord, you know, <laughs> just super passionate. And literally like two or three months into that new direction, trying to get my feet wet, my voice was taken away. I was uh, injured somehow talking. I, I'd never been injured before. I've been five years of recording literally hundreds of hours of audio. And it's still recovering now, but praise God, it's it's gotten better. Something the ligaments or something just got so sore that literally I could talk for you know ten minutes, and then I have to take a break for the rest of the day. And that was rough. That was really rough. It was like at a, at a vulnerable time, you know, and um, and that also purchased me things that I wouldn't have been able to purchase if I had health, if I had all the things that I wanted. And so, God allow, allowed me that time to build a habit of prayer to learn about things like celebrating the Sabbath, to learn about studying the Bible, to learn about my faith. And it was just a time of really going inward. And then I started doing Bible studies. You know, once my voice started coming back, I'm like, okay, let me just push myself a little bit. And I prayed to God every time I would sit down and record. Even before this, I have I had you. I have a, actually, I'm starting to do testimonies on my show. <laughs> so, oh, wow. I, yeah, so I'm really excited about that to get back into interviewing because now I have a purpose for interviewing. You know, before I was just interviewing entrepreneurs and I, I interviewed some very successful people. You know, it was very, you know, like I said, I was booked very uh, frequently, but it was meaningless. You know, ultimately, if you're not sharing the gospel with people or bringing them to Christ, especially in the time that we live in, uh, it was just meaningless to me. So so now I'm having interviews. So, I, you know, today I'm like, Lord, please give me strength that I may speak. You know, so I'm just taking it one day at a time. And long story short, it's been uh, it's been quite the year. You know, I actually just recorded an episode about how five years ago when I started this podcast, and, and you can relate to this, I'm sure, that, that when we do podcasts or write a book or whatever, our first audience is ourselves, Right. That's mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, we, we do it for ourselves and not that we do it for ourselves in a selfish way, but it's like we need to hear the things that we talk about the most often. I, that's what I feel. And my podcast, when I first started it, was my attempt to break free from working from somebody else and trying to be making my own thing, you know, listen to society and basically be an entrepreneur. And the first episode was taking action to create a life you love. You can still find it on iTunes. It's terrible. <laughs> but but as I look now, five years later, literally five years ago, I look at the last year and how much God has taken action to create the life that I love rather than me trying to figure out my life and create a life. You know, it's, that's what society tells you. You got to create the life you love. You got to do it. It's up to you. It's the, it's the lie from the Garden of Eden. And now I look back and literally I can tell you I haven't really planned anything this year. And yet so much has, has been accomplished with such little resources when I was chasing the rat wheel of personal growth and being a coach and all that stuff. And I still do coaching. I do Christian coaching now, which I'm so excited about. Somehow that happened. You know, I've been able to work with other Christians and coach them. You use my personal growth skills, but yet, you know, with, with the lens of the Bible, which has been so fulfilling. I thank God for that. But my point is I would have never been able to plan these things. And I've been able to do so much. I boast in the Lord because he's given me, um, a life that I never would have expected. I never would have expected any of this. You know, this year I read the Bible all the way through, and I, ne I never had an interest for the Bible in the past. 
you know, so there's just things like this that really, um, I could go on, but ultimately it's just, God has created a life that I love and it's a a life that's very fulfilling. And it's something that I didn't really, I mean, I participated, I followed the promptings, you know, I followed, okay, do this. You know, I feel like I didn't got to do this. I followed those things, but I didn't, you know, sit there and chase and plan and all these things that I used to do and spend all this money. And, you know, it's a lot. This is, goes back to the thing I was telling you with dancing. One of the biggest principles that I've learned and that I talk about with people is alignment. And alignment is, is this. If you have a misalignment and you try to push action and energy through that misalignment, you're going to waste resources. That's just the law of the universe. It's a law of the universe. And so, for example, if your tires are misaligned, and you keep riding them like that on your bike or your you know car you're eventually going to run into a lot of problems you know if your teeth are misaligned even slightly and you chew every day guess what you're going to unevenly chew away the enamel on your teeth and you're going to lead to cavities and other problems so alignment is the key if you, if you have good alignment you can move very freely and so the same thing is in spiritual life if you're misaligned if your ladder is up on the wrong building you could be climbing that ladder all day. You're going to realize it's propped up against the wrong wall. And you could spend tons of money and resources and all these things. You could have all these external results. But ultimately, if you're misaligned, you're not going to do anything. And that was the story of my life because God was missing from the picture. And once that picture was restored, not by my own doing, but by God's doing, uh, like I said, so much has been created this year. I, I've been able to do, you know, i I built my own food dehydrator from a cardboard box and a heater to be able to dehydrate food for food prep. And I literally, I I prayed to God to help me for that. I'm like, you know, Lord, this may sound really stupid, but I know that you helped Noah build an ark. (laughs) And I don't think he was a carpenter. So I'm like, you know, the Bible says that you give gifts to people and, you know, you you help craftsmen and things. I'm like, please help me build this so I can you know, dehydrate some food and, and food prep and save some money on different things. And lo and behold, it works like a charm. Instead of spending $300 on a food dehydrator, I literally spent like 60 bucks and I built one and it works actually really well. So it's just things like this that I never would have, you know, in my wildest dreams even come up with, but somehow God works in mysterious ways. Here I am dreading having to put a bookshelf together later. <laughs> You'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tudor, so I'm actually really excited about today's conversation because I actually came across your channel in search for a guest to have on, in particular with the incarnation of Christ, because that doctrine just overwhelms me. I love that doctrine so much, and it's often a doctrine that a lot of people don't talk about, and... Um, it's so funny because when I came across your series, I felt because you're actually the very last interview for this year on Revivalist for Christ. And uh, yeah, we're growing out with a bang, (laughs) but I spent so much of this year defending the doctrine of eternal security, which is what your series is about. And this next year, I'm kind of not that I'm not going to not defend that anymore but i'm switching apologetic spheres over to defending the deity of christ and then if time allows also the overall godhead but 
it seemed like your conversation and your series would have acted as the perfect segue. So I was really excited to have this conversation. But before we hop into that, I think it is fair to you and fair to the community because what some may not know tuning in right now is you are actually reformed. You don't use the word Calvinist as we were talking before, but that is a branch of theology that you closely associate with. And I told you that uh, I was saved 15 years ago and uh, I started off in a Wesleyan church after being saved and I quickly grew out of that and became a Calvinist for a large portion of my Christian walk. And then in recent years, um, have kind of adapted my theology. I still hold to some things and we'll talk about free will and all that because um, uh, that's where I I don't quite hold to libertarian free will, but I also don't quite hold to some of the reform doctrines. But I told you ahead of time that my community has made up a lot of people who have been hurt at the hands of Calvinists and have come to my channel based off of conversations I've had since leaving Calvinism. And so this community has consisted of people who have religious OCD, who struggle with mental illness, and some people at times have even been suicidal. So I always like to give my guests who come on who are Calvinists the chance to speak to those people. That way they don't feel like it's not a safe place or not a safe conversation. I'm curious, how, how were they, I mean, in general, I guess, how were they hurt at the hands of quote-unquote Calvinists? Yeah, so it kind of differs between the people, but a lot of people have kind of, you know, just in their struggles with certain sins or in their bouts with mental illness, they've just been kind of guided along the lines of being told they're not one of the elect. And I think uh, with some of them, they haven't been given the affordability or the grace to go on the journey of spiritual maturity. They've just been kind of told, I mean, for example, I'll tell you, one person reached out to a Calvinistic pastor, um, well, not a pastor, he was a teacher. He said he was struggling with porn and he really wanted to overcome it. And he wanted to know what resources uh, he could do. And instead of providing resources or help, he was just told, you're going to hell if you don't repent. And he's like, I'm trying. What do I need to do? (laughs) So it's a lot of occurrences like that where people have just been told, like, you can't have assurance of salvation. You can't be... that's positive. weird because Calvinism is all about eternal security. So that and this that's is just, what I horrible. <laughs> yeah, and this is Bad something I've said about the Westminster Confession of Faith. Is even that confession talks about Christians who can fall into these seasons of um, spiritual immaturity, and it does allow yeah. for this growth. And I think there's so many, especially with the rise of new Calvinism that have shipwrecked a lot of people's faith but traditional Mm. calvinism does push assurance and eternal security oh yeah yeah for sure i mean i in my series i have a whole um at the end i believe the the last episode i talk about objections and one of the objections i i discuss in detail is the case of saul king saul because a lot of people there's debate on whether you know saul was saved or not and my argument is that he is saved Oh, yes. he was saved because at any time people look at 
situations like, well, <clears throat> Saul wasn't saved. Well, it's like, okay, why do you think that? Well, because he did this and this and this and this. Okay, but we're not saved by your works, whether they're good or bad. You're saved by what God did. And if you read the scriptures, God gave Saul a new heart. That's consistent with being born again. Now, Saul made a lot of mistakes. He had, a, you know, he was battling insecurity throughout his life with, with David and, and just being, but that was, you know, his role. There's, it's such a complicated case. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to get too much into it, but I, Saul was saved not because of what he did or didn't do. It's because of what God did. And as long as your attention is on God, then you understand eternal security. If not, then, you know, you get lost in people's, you know, and that's the point behind that is if Saul can be saved, with all the horrible things that he did, <laughs> you know, then that's that's the whole point is that gives us hope, man. It gives us hope. And, and that's why I think that eternal security is, you know, I, I've said this so many times, but the, the early church, the people who endured persecution beyond imagination, being fed to lions, being, you know, thrown in oil and burned alive. I mean, just absolutely horrible things that the generation of today couldn't even imagine. Those people believed in eternal security. That was their strength. They didn't think, oh, you could lose your salvation. If I have this thought or if I have a weakness right now, I might lose my eternal status. No. The reason they had strength to endure persecution is because they were eternally secure. And that's what mm -hmm. the scriptures teach. It's very clear. So anyway, yeah. I really feel I feel sorry for anybody who had to deal with that. I, anytime anybody has reached out to me with anything like that, I have never said anything like that. I think that's horrible for anybody to do regardless of your leanings, whether it's, you know, one or the other, I think that's absolutely horrible. And here's my response, my quick response to anybody who's received a, a kind of response like that. Number one, and this, this may be up for debate in this episode, but <laughs> I don't believe the Bible teaches an eternal torment. I don't believe that that's the case at all. I believe in annihilationism. I don't think that you can be a Calvinist and believe in eternal torment because ultimately Calvinism teaches predestination. And it's not in line with God's pattern of judgment to punish somebody forever. If you look throughout scriptures, God's judgment is you sin, you die. That's it. I don't have to deal with you anymore because he sustains everybody. He's not going to sustain people eternally in hell and give them eternal life and like destroy them constantly. That's just nonsense. That's a teaching that evolved out of pagan uh, spiritual ideas with the immortal soul and all this Greek philosophy that came into the church. But the Hebrews themselves, the people who wrote the Bible, they never believed in an immortal soul. They believed in a contingent soul that was attached to the physical body, and it were contingent beings based on God's decision to keep you alive or not. And that was the whole point. You were completely dependent on God. And so this, this idea of hell is actually a future thing where the lake of fire, where everybody's going to be resurrected, and yeah, they're going to be thrown in hell, but the wicked, they'll burn and they'll die just like there's been judgment throughout all of history. And so the whole idea that, that holding this thing over people's heads, like you're going to have eternal torment and you're going to, that is just nonsense in my book because it's just unnecessary fear. And, and the other part is, again, you're not, you're not damned or condemned by the things that you do. If you're truly saved, if you have a relationship with God, then, you know, and that's up, you know, there's nobody can tell you if you're elect or not. That's nonsense too. I reject that because ultimately it's not up to us to say, you see, they're elect and we're not, you know, yeah. that's not, that's not, that's not election. Election is something that first off is 
it it is taught in the Bible, but it's not something you can go and hang over other people's heads. Exactly. Because imagine if you go out and evangelize and you say, you know what, I don't know, those people don't really look elect to me. I, I shouldn't evangelize them. That's nonsense. <laughs> the whole point is that you got to proclaim the gospel, right? We don't we don't try to sell the gospel. We don't try to filter out who gets it. I mean, to some extent, some people might reject and say, okay, well, move on, just like the apostles were told, and, and let the Holy Spirit decide. But you know, it's not up to us to decide who's elect, who's saved, who's not. That's no. Your job is just to be a, a good Christian as much as you can be, and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. You know, I, I yeah, I, I think people can get fanatical with certain things, and that's why I said I don't consider myself a Calvinist. I, I do hold to the five points of Calvinism. I think they're very um, sound. I think that they can be defensible with Scripture very easily, but I don't believe in everything that Calvin taught. I'm not, I don't follow Calvin. I follow Jesus. So, you know. Yeah, and I definitely really appreciate you saying a lot of that. In quick side note on the idea of eternal conscious torment and conditional immortality, I'll, I'd be lying if I didn't say I fell into the line of normal Protestant theology where it's like, oh, yeah. But then eventually I started... Uh, the. I was introduced to this idea of conditional immortality. And at first I just had the knee jerk reaction to reject it. And I was like, absolutely not. And then I kind of came along the ideas of, okay, um, if it is true, I'm still going to treat it like it's eternal conscious torment. But then I had the conviction of you don't want to misrepresent God in any facet. And that would be his judgment as well so i know that regardless of how god chooses the judge i know he's righteous i know he's just so but i've been on a journey learning more about that recently so it's very interesting to hear you talk about that and i'd be interested to hear more because i never realized how good the evidence and scriptural support was for conditional immortality until more recently so i'd be yeah. very interested to hear more from you on that um sometime but what i was when you were talking the thing that really stuck out to me is the huge difference between you and other calvinists that i've had on and what some of these people have fallen into is there is no judgment coming from, and you also acknowledge that it's not your place to judge. And the Bible does call for judgment of things like false prophets and stuff like that. But, you know, it seems like there, there is a realization of spiritual maturity or immaturity for that sense that does take place in the believer's life. And there is still assurance in that because it's not based off of the good or bad that we do, but the grace of God, you know, not to him that willeth or runneth, but to God that showed mercy. So I really do hope a lot of people are edified by that. Now you did yeah. say you differed from Calvin, still holding to the five points of Calvinism. Um, how would you break down your reformed views to those who are asking? So what exactly do you believe? I mean, I'd, I'd say it's pretty straightforward. You know, I believe in the deity of Christ, that Christ is Yahweh from the Bible and that there's a Trinity uh, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I believe we're saved by grace. I believe that scripture is inerrant to convey the truth and anything that you want to know it's in scripture. People who argue that, 
the Bible's been changed or there's translation issues or, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, those are true. Things happen. The scribes, you know, it's not like we had digital information. It was scribes that were trans transcribing things. And there are things that have been changed. But the question is, is the truth still there? And the, and the answer is yes. The Bible is completely accurate in everything it says and the truth about theology, the truth about God, the truth about salvation. It's all there, right? So I believe that the scripture is infallible in that regard. Um, I believe in eternal security. I observe the Sabbath. Um, I believe in annihilationism. <laughs> so that's uh, some of these are not very popular views, but you know, ultimately I, the truth is sometimes not very popular. Um, and then the eschatology, I, I believe in a millennialism, a millennialism. So I, I don't believe in a physical millennial kingdom. I believe that uh, we're in the millennium now, and not that that's like a good thing in the sense that, you know, there's supposed to be all this Christian prosperity, but we are in the period of time where, um, you know, it's the last days, and then when Christ comes, it will be the end, so. Yeah, so uh, for me, just so you know, Tudor, uh, where I am and kind of where I've evolved in my Reformed theology, I think things like total depravity are still true. I don't believe anyone can come to God without him calling you. I think libertarian free will is not biblical. And I think yeah. if people understood libertarian free will in the sense of what it actually means, um, there's a difference between having the freedom of choice, which I'll explain in a minute, and then having libertarian free will which says that your will can somehow uh first of all that you are the one responsible for coming to god and then also you can walk in and out of salvation i don't find that biblical at all and i do think there is a danger in libertarian free will um now what i've come to see in recent years in my journey uh, is just kind of like you know, terms that I've always held to, like predestination. Um, in further study, I've seen that the predestination in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 wasn't from lost people unto salvation, but it was already saved saints unto glorification. And I looked at other things about, you know, the gospel, you know, being preached to all men and no one, as Romans 1 says, is going to be able to stand before God and say, oh, I didn't know. And so I think the gospel does afford enough grace for a person to make a choice. But at the same time, you know, this is why the Bible talks about don't harden your heart against the truth and um, yielding your heart to the living God. So there's some things that I've since adapted, but at the same time still see to be true. And I just ultimately, I think when it comes to the mystery of God and his sovereignty and how can that really in, exist in a uh, realm where man also makes a choice. I just think that's one of the mysteries like the Godhead, which we're going to talk about today that we simply can't understand on this face of the earth, but yeah, I and do thank God it's a mystery, right? Thank God. It is right. Well, if can, this it, is can what you I imagine was... if we knew it would, there'd be no point to living. And it's so funny because I was just thinking this, I was like, we can't even get the simplicity in Christ right most of the time. Do you think we could even understand the character of God? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, obviously we know basic characteristics, but as far as everything eternal, I mean, I can't imagine. But uh, so I am excited to hop into this conversation, Tudor. Now, one thing that I realized about your series 
is your whole series is titled Oh Sass, Once Saved, Always Saved. And that kind of caught me off guard originally, being that you are reformed. Is there a reason you chose that phrase to use that phrase rather than perseverance of the saints? Because exactly that reason, because it catches people off guard and it's a little controversial. <laughs> mm. But 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 the reason is exactly because to me, when I when I look at the phrase once saved, always saved. The reason it's controversial is because people, most people look at that phrase and they interpret it from somebody saying it. Like, like, oh, I'm saved, so I'm always saved. I look at it and I say, what is God doing? Right. Mm. So it depends, it depends how you look at it. If you're looking at it from the perspective of what are people saying about themselves, then it becomes very controversial. And that's why it is controversial because people say, see, there's plenty of people who are saying they're saved, but they're living their life and they're partying. It's like, yeah, your works and what you say don't save you. It's what God does. So that's why to me, once saved, always saved is the same as eternal security. It's the same as perseverance of the saints. It's an equivalent statement because I don't look at it from perspective of, you know, I, I say that I'm saved, so therefore I'm saved. I don't look at it like that. I look at it as God saved this person or God saved me. And I know that God's work is perfect. So therefore I'm always saved. That's how I look at it. But yeah, it, my initial reason was <laughs> just because it's so controversial. And there's been a lot of you know people who obviously who comment on it and just uh, there's a lot of heat for using that term, obviously. But again, to me, it's uh, unneeded because if you understand that it's what God's doing, then there's no there's no quarrel. I, I don't see a quarrel around that. So. Absolutely. And today, guys, in specific, what we are going to be talking about is why we are eternally secure in relation to the incarnation in the Godhead, which is a conversation that often exists in reform circles that doesn't exist in other circles. And that is the one thing that I can appreciate about the reform circles, because I think this is a very, very, very critical element to understand. And I think those who struggle with assurance of salvation, uh, but still hold to eternal security. The reason they struggle is because they don't understand this part of it. And so it's only a conversation that I really see being had in the Reformed camp, sadly. Um, but I'm hoping that we will be able to bring this conversation to other theological camps, because if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand exactly why you are eternally secure. Um, but Tudor, when it comes to the idea of eternal security? Is this a doctrine that you've always believed as long as you've been saved? Is it something that you've learned over time? Have you ever struggled with it? Um, I mean, I've I looking back in my life, I grew up in Catholic schools. I was Eastern Orthodox. You know, I went to Catholic private schools. So, you know, I had a very works-based religion upbringing. But I always felt in my, my internal self, I always felt like God is taking care of things, you know, like God's doing the work in that sense. I never really articulated it that way, but I always felt like, okay, you know, there's something, it's going to work out. God's in control. I always had that feeling. And ever since coming to Christ, and especially, you know, like diving deep into the scripture and really just, you know, going full on with that, I've obviously been able to intellectualize it more. So I guess I always felt predestination. I always, that may just made sense to me based on my life experiences. I've had a lot of near death experiences. I've had a lot of um, 
things that just you look back and like, wow, that just worked out perfectly. Like there's no way that this had to be chance or that, you know, it was just some coincidence. There's a greater plan to the world. There's a greater plan to my life. And so, yeah, I I always naturally gravitated in that direction. As far as struggling with it, not really. Um, All the points made sense to me. Um, The one that was probably the most controversial for, I don't know if it's the most, but it seems like to be the most is limited atonement. And I don't think of it as limited. I think of it as complete atonement. I think that, you know, the father gave who he gave to the son as a people and the son redeemed them. You know, that's pretty straightforward to me. I don't think of it as limited in any way. I just think of it as a completed action. So um, other than that, I I don't really, I haven't really struggled with it. All the points seem natural to me, especially over looking at my own experience and how I came to Christ. Like you said, total depravity. I would have never made the right choice um, if it wasn't for an act of God. And that act was through irresistible grace. You know, you look back on your life, you're like, wow, you know, so many things have could have gone differently. It had to be God's work in all of this. And he's also given me the the strength to persevere every time, whether it was physical or mental or emotional, whatever. And so it all it all makes sense to me. I, I can't say that I really had any struggle adopting those beliefs. Mm. Yeah, and it's very interesting. I want to take the time to pick your brain on this real quick because, Tudor, there has been some recent um anxieties if you will uh of people who have been introduced to eastern orthodoxy and because there are so limited resources out there apologetics wise they have been struggling with is it the one true church and i've been trying to work with them try to break it down we've done a stream a couple weeks ago so for the sake of those people i'm curious what led you out of eastern orthodoxy the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is what led me out. Um, I mean, ultimately, once you know the truth, you you can't, like when somebody tells you the truth about something, you can't undo that. You can't rewind your awareness. You can pretend, but you know, you can't undo the truth. And so ultimately, when you realize that Eastern Orthodoxy, first and foremost, is not the one true church, and I can prove it to you. If you look in church history, one of their arguments is that, well, you know, so many people split off from the Catholic Church, but we never had anybody split off. We're the one true church. And it's like, actually, if you look at church history, the first people to split off were the Eastern <laughs> Orthodox. And, and I don't mean the Eastern Orthodox in 1000 AD when the when the big divide happened. I'm talking about, um, I forget the, the names exactly, but like the, they're the Eastern church, you know, the East, whatever, the Eastern Antiochian church. And the, there's a, several councils that happened in the first couple centuries of, of the church. And one of those councils actually was on the topic of the incarnation. It was the council of uh, Chalcedon. Now I don't remember if it was Chalcedon or Ephesus, but either way, it, that happened around three or 400 AD. And one of the churches, which is still, alive and well today. It's got like 20, 30 million people and it. it's the Eastern Church. Um, they they split off because they didn't agree with, with the uh, conclusions on the Incarnation. And so they hold to some heretical views about the Incarnation. And so basically, you know, you have splits happening from the very beginning. It's not like Catholics are the single problem that led to all the Protestants. First off, I mean, the original Protestants they had something good in mind, which is let's go back to the truth. 
You know, that was the whole point. Let's go back to the truth. Let's go get out of this workspace religion, which is what Eastern Orthodoxy is. You know, the Eastern Orthodoxy is, first off, mysticism. They have a lot of mysticism. If you look at, I went to my church, because, you know, my mom is still practicing, and and that's fine. But, you know, I, I go to church with her sometimes. But, you know, you go into these churches, and there's literally a whole library full of, like, prayer books and fasting books and all these different books and this and that. And I'm like, where's the Bible? <laughs> they don't have it. They, to them, the Bible is not an authority. It's it's sort of a secondary thing. It's the church fathers and, you know, the church. Well, wait a minute. You know, if the church fathers and the church and all these other things are authoritative, then how do you reconcile some serious conflicts with the Bible? That's what you got to get to. And, and nobody... Uh, likes to do that because it it reveals that either the Bible is lying or your church, you know, beliefs are at fault. But there's so many things like praying for the dead. That's that's contrary to Scripture. You can't pray for somebody after they're dead. They're dead. They're gone. I mean, they're they're going to get resurrected, whether to shame or to glory. We don't know, but they're they're gone. The whole idea of an afterlife is is a fallen angel idea. That that they created in man, so that they could receive the worship that God receives. Only God can create life. Nobody in the universe other than God can create life. But the fallen angels and, and the devil, they wanted to be God, and they know they can't create life. They can't create, so they got to do the next best thing and and create this metaphysical world, you know, this quote unquote digital world of the afterlife, the underworld, where you're you can be a soul and you can do all these things and. If you do things in this life, then you can get all these things in the afterlife and then worship me because I'm the God of death, you know, and that's that's where this whole lie about the afterlife and the immortal soul and praying for the dead, which which saturates Catholicism and, and Eastern Orthodoxy, not to mention the fact that they have all these just rat wheels of it's basically the sacrificial system all over again, this, this the sacraments and all these different things like fasting and, and doing certain holidays and you know, you do this. They believe that works plus grace equals your salvation. And if you believe that, that's not the gospel. That's a religion. That's slavery. That's what Christ came to destroy. The gospel, mm-hmm. the, the gospel and predestination and election and grace and all these things, it's all part of the same thing. It's completely and utterly unique to Christianity and to Jesus. Nobody can counterfeit that. There's a lot of counterfeit gospels. But nobody can counterfeit election and predestination and you're saved by grace because God is doing all the work. You see where the you see where the devil gets you? With all these religions, what do they have in common? They have in common this idea of libertarian free will that you need to do something. Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, the Vikings, you know, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy. There's no difference. All of them rely on the concept that you need to do something to be reconciled with God to some effect. It doesn't matter that God is providing some grace. So long as you're doing something that you need to do, it, it's up to you. You know, like I've used this example where if you apply to a college, let's say you go to Harvard and you apply to Harvard and, you know, you graduate from Harvard and you have a nice degree. Who gets the glory in that situation? Is it Harvard that gets the glory for giving you the opportunity? Or do you get the glory for actually graduating? Well, yeah, you get the glory. I mean, people know it's from Harvard and say, oh, fancy school. But, well, he went to Harvard. He, you know, he must be something. 
And so, it, you know, it's, it's a crummy example, but in the same way you can think about salvation. Like, God isn't God of salvation in the Bible because he offers salvation. God is God of salvation because he completes the, the task. He's the one who completes it for you. And he's the one who ensures that you're saved and who does the work to regenerate your heart and to keep you saved and to give you new desires. Sure, are you participating in that? Absolutely. Sure, are you called to you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Sure, but that doesn't mean work for. It just means you've been given a priceless gift. Go. <laughs> Embrace this mystery of, free, of, of predestination, but yet we have an experience of free will. It seems like we're choosing and we're going through life and we're doing these things. Go, embrace it. Don't question, just go. So yeah, it's a mystery, but thank God it's a mystery, but God is doing the work. And so when you get that, you realize that all these things that, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism is a very external religion. It's very, oh, you know, there's all these icons and gold and tradition. And, you know, it's a very, um, it's a religion for the eyes. And a lot of people who are seduced easily by how things look and, and feel, you know, it, it's just like anything else. So you look at, for example, the Protestants, um, like the hyper-charismatic movement, people who are very seduced by their emotions get fall prey to the hyper-charismatic movement. You got to, if you don't have, if you're not frothing at the mouth, it's not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what it is. And obviously that's nonsense because, you know, the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is an awareness. It's it, He gives you an awareness of new things. He gives you discernment. He gives you the ability to see clearly. It's not about, yeah, sure, you can be passionate. You can, you know, there's a lot of things the Holy Spirit does, but it, it's not, if you're not passionate, if you're not yelling and screaming, you're convulsing and, oh, I feel the Spirit right now. Like, if you're not doing that, that's not faith? I don't think so. So you see, there's right. a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways that the devil gets you. Uh, and it all has to do with the world. Those are worldly things. You can measure, if you can measure your faith with worldly things, like how things look or, you know, tradition or your personal feelings right now, if those are physical things that you're measuring faith with, that's not really faith. Faith is the truth, which is we cannot do it on our own. It's God that did the work for us. You know, that's yeah. the gospel. So that's the truth. That's where you start. And it's so interesting because the Bible clearly says in Hebrews that faith is not seen. So it's right. so interesting, like what people do do with it. And so Tudor, I did want to share this comment with you. So this is Rachel. She's our social media coordinator. And she is one of the ones that have been struggling with this. Not like she understands by grace through faith, but she has been harassed greatly. Mm -hmm. um, it's been really disgusting the way she's been talked to by someone in her life who's Eastern Orthodox. So she did say thank you so i appreciate you sharing that because yeah. it is it's very difficult to come and wrap your mind around um just how do you begin to fight against all these theological systems but when you do realize that they all are singing the same song and dance maybe just it's all the same man. Tune. yeah it's all the same um, but Let's get into what I've been looking for here, Tudor. So let's start with the incarnation. Love this doctrine. Can you define in your own words what the incarnation is for those who may not be familiar with the doctrine? Well, it's just it's just a doctrine that 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. I mean, John 1 pretty much explains it. Um, John 1 talks about the Word becoming flesh, you know, and suffering for us. And he became human. He became fully human. Now, this has been the topic of a lot of discussion and debate over the last 2,000 years, is what is the nature of Christ's existence when he was human on earth? Some people said he was fully human and he gave up his godhood. Some people said, you know, well, he was, you know, more spiritual and he was less human. You know, so there's there was a lot of, especially in the early church, a lot of argument around what is the nature of this. And so around 400 AD, they settled on a an acceptable definition, which is that Christ had two natures simultaneously. He had a human nature and he had a divine nature, but he had he is one person. All right, so he's not he's not like the the divine person of Christ and the and the human person of Christ, like two personalities. He was one person, he's two two natures. And so anything that combines the natures together or divides the person is a heresy. And that's basically what they settled on. And that's where uh, back to what we were talking about, the Eastern Church split off because I think they wanted to combine I forget what they believed in exactly regarding the incarnation, but they were I think they were kind of trying to combine the natures into one nature. And they still believe that today. But it, here's the problem. If you combine the natures, then Christ wasn't fully human. And the whole point is that he took on humanity to be just like us. Now, he didn't have a sin nature. Right? So there's something that we need to understand, which is that before the fall, man was created good. Human nature is good. We have emotions. We have creativity. We have the ability to be spiritual. We have, you know, the ability to love. We have all these things that God's given us. We have an intelligence. We have, you know, awareness. We have a name. All these things are part of our human nature, and they're good. There's nothing wrong with them. But the the, the again, it goes back to us being contingent beings. Michael Heiser, if you're familiar with him, has a good study on this idea of being made in the image of God. And you have to remember that the Old Testament, an image was a statue of some sort. And they believed that every image was inhabited by the spirit that they worshipped. So it wasn't just like a statue. It was a vessel or, you know, like a, a container for the spirit. And so when, when the Bible says that we're made in the image of God, the whole point from the very beginning was that we were contingent beings for God to to inhabit through his spirit. That was the whole point from the very beginning. But God being God has to set a very expansive legal precedent for that. And so that's why, again, you look at the history from that lens, and it's just fascinating how everything was organized and predestined to create the precedent for God to inhabit his creation. But at the very beginning, that precedent wasn't there. Adam and Eve didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were just human nature. They, they, they were in perfect circumstances. They didn't have, you know, trauma from their parents. They didn't have, you know, a fallen world. They didn't have anything. They had, they had perfect, it was, it was, the, this is the brilliance of God. Adam and Eve in the garden, if you've ever done science, you know, like any kind of science experimentation, it was the perfect science experiment because the independent variable was whether God was inhabiting them or not. That was the variable that was being controlled. And God proved that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, the things that I gave you, human nature, which are good, will erode and 
cause problems. And that's exactly what happened. It was the ultimate controlled experiment. People look at at, uh, at the story of, e- of Eden and say, oh, you know, it's just a fairy tale. It's No, that's the point. God made it perfect to prove to you that there's literally no other circumstance that affected the outcome. If he's not involved, then what happens is human nature turns into sin nature. So when Christ wow. became you know, the, the last Adam, he it was God proving that he was right. That was one of the things. It was God proving that he was right. He became a human being, took on the human nature that he created. Now, he didn't have sin nature, but he had the human qualities in nature that, that Adam had before the fall. But he, he, because he was also, he had a divine nature, God is spirit, second person of the Trinity was in Jesus. It was a union. He was able to use the human nature perfectly as it was always intended. That's why we're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the ultimate template. And and that you know took several thousands of years to, to create a legal precedent for. And so studying the incarnation is just it's a fascinating topic. I I just you know marvel at how just the fact that the ultimate creator of the universe, right? The, the just the ultimate being became a human being. I mean it's just it's uh it's really, you know, we, we can intellectualize it all we want at the end of the day. It's just crazy to think about. <laughs> so, it's but it, but the, the, the general the, the the general teaching is two natures, one person. Don't divide. Don't divide the person. Don't mix the natures up. Absolutely. So, what would you say? What are some absolute texts that you would go to to say? Yes, the Bible clearly teaches God became man. Do you have any of those, Tudor? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot that you could go to. Psalm 22 is obviously a very popular messianic psalm, and that was written about a thousand years before Christ. And if you look at Psalm 22, uh, I mean, it's just all about Jesus's life. There's no way that it cannot be about anybody other than Jesus. And we know from even from historical evidence that Jesus existed. That's not, even atheists don't argue against Jesus existing as a physical person. Mm-hmm. So you have that predicted in Psalm 22. You have it predicted in Isaiah 53. I mean, there's all kinds of other uh, Psalms and predictions for Jesus's life. So there's a lot of prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. So that proves that he, he was indeed, you know, born and came to earth um, but, you know, you have also this typology throughout the Bible. You know, typology is like, from, even from the very beginning, Adam is a type of Christ. If you look at how Eve was created, <laughs> so much, I love the Bible, you know, it's just every time you read it, there's a new layer. But mm-hmm. Eve was Eve was created from Adam's rib. Well, the church was created from Jesus's death on the cross. How was Christ killed? Well, he was, I mean, he was killed on crucifixion, but he was also stabbed. In the same side and so the blood that poured out that redeemed you know the saints and that does redeem us it's it's apparent you know adam's situation where he was put to sleep and a rib was taken out that created eve is a typology for christ being killed on the cross being stabbed and then the church being his bride coming from that so there's typologies then right away after that you look at abel abel was a shepherd Abel was righteous in God's eyes, but what happened to Abel? He got killed. You know, I mean, it's just, there's so many typologies throughout the Bible. It's like God is just telling you, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to (laughs) happen. Be ready for it. 
And it's just undeniable that all those things are about Jesus. Um, he also had two powers in heaven, uh, which was a, was a theology in Judaism, but obviously it got to declared a heresy quickly after Christ came to earth because they didn't want to have any association to Jesus. And so for a long time, the Jews believed in two powers in heaven. And that's very clear from the Old Testament. You look at the angel of the Lord and you have times where God is speaking, you know, in third person of himself, and yet it's still Yahweh, you know? So there's a lot of these types of things where it was very confusing, and rightly so, because again, it's their shadows designed to be revealed in the New Testament. And so the two powers in heaven was was a big theory in Judaism up until the second century. And then you also had, uh, I mean, even today, Jews still believe in two messiahs. They believe in a suffering messiah and a conquering messiah. And the Jews in Jesus' time struggled with that. They didn't understand that it was the same person. Even the apostles, they, the apostles did not understand that the suffering Messiah and the conquering Messiah were the same person until Jesus died. They didn't get it. He remember Jesus was saying, you know, I, I'm going to be dying soon, and you're not going to see me. They're, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. And so, all these things that are prophetic, you know, the, the thing that again, going back to predestination, you can't have predestination. You can't have prophecy if you don't have predestination. The fact that the Bible is prophetic is stone-cold proof that predestination is real. You can't. God is not going to wait around. Imagine if, if life worked the way that people who subscribe to libertarian free will, actually, if it worked that way. Like, God would have to wait around for people to, to choose, and he's waiting around for prophecy, or... If people choose and they, they fulfill the prophecy early, he has to stop them. So either way, you're not going to have free will. You see what I'm saying? And so ultimately, the Bible being a prophetic book is proof that there's predestination. And there's tons of prophecy and typology when it comes to Jesus. So yeah, I would say that Scripture itself testifies that Christ became a human being um, and was both the suffering and the conquering Messiah, and that we have extra-biblical resources as well that testify that Jesus existed, that he was crucified. And there's even, you know, the resurrection has a lot of evidence behind it. And it's fascinating to look into that. Some people say, well, how can you prove he raised from the dead? Well, you know, you don't have physical proof, sure. But again, it's like, what do you consider proof? There's there's a lot of really good proof that shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only logical explanation is that Christ rose from the dead, from all the different witness testimonies and, and the embarrassment criteria in the, in the gospel, you know, and so ultimately, if that proof is not satisfactory for you, that's the question. You know, you could, you could show somebody proof of anything, but they could still refuse to accept the proof. And so, you know, there is proof. The question is whether you accept it or not. So, yeah. Oh, I love that you brought up typology, Tudor, because that's actually a huge thing that we do on this channel. I oftentimes collaborate with Renee Roland and Above Reproach Ministry, Jason Camacho, to talk through the types and shadows. And if you want to see me lose my mind in excitement, <laughs> get me on the topic of types and shadows. But obviously, 
sadly, disgustingly, there are groups that rise up in the world as early as the Aryans, probably before that, honestly, that, you know, really come against the deity of Christ. Now, when people fall back on certain proof texts, and, you know, proof text is so different than a scripture found in context, proof texts are absent of context, what would you say to those who fall back on those texts to disprove, well, not actually disprove, but to say that the deity of Christ is not biblical? Well, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of people in those positions and it's i'm going to start by saying this you don't even need the bible to know that jesus has to be god in order for salvation to work you don't need i mean the bible helps quite a bit but just in plain thought you don't need the bible and here's why atonement is not possible without self-existing blood so God obviously has a rank and order of life forms. He said that our lives are worth more than many sparrows. In the Levitical system, he had different animals sacrificed for different level of sins. And so, obviously, humans are never sacrificed. Why? Because humans are very valuable. On the converse end of that, all the pagans who sacrificed their children, why did they sacrifice children and not puppy dogs? Because children had the most value. That was the thing that the gods wanted. Why? Because... The lifeblood of a child was more valuable than the lifeblood of an ox. So obviously there are different ranks to blood and their ability to procure spiritual benefits. Let's put it that way, right? So a bull will atone for certain sins up to a point. So here's where we get into trouble. And that's why I say you don't need the Bible. But ultimately, the only way to atone for everybody's sins for all of time. And when I say everybody, I mean the people that God had chosen to to save. But either way, that's still a lot of people. To atone for all those people's sins forever is, you can't have a created being be sacrificed. It's impossible. A created being has a limited ability to atone. Whereas if you have self-existent blood that is the source of life, it's the value is infinity. So think in terms of numbers, right? So let's say human life is worth a hundred points, right? And then you have, you know, an angel life is worth 10,000 points because they're, you know, really super fancy. doesn't matter. You still run out of points eventually. You need infinite. And the only one with infinite points is God. God has self-existent blood. And so he had to incarnate himself. Do you see the genius behind it? He had to become flesh and blood so that his blood would be the blood that would have the most value and that's infinite value and that the atonement could be completed. Otherwise, there's nothing that could atone for all the people that God had chosen to save. It would be impossible. So there's no way that Christ could be a created being. I don't care if people say he was created at birth. I don't care if you say he was created at some point before that, then he became, you know, that's nonsense. Christ, Jesus is God. He's Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he became flesh so that that spirit could have benefits for us. He became a life-giving spirit. That's what that means. And so that's my first response. There's no way you can believe in a created being sacrificed and believe in atonement. It doesn't work. But Jesus was accused of blasphemy five times at least, 
That's why they wanted to stone him and kill him many times because he claimed things of God. He claimed to forgive sins, that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that he is going to come on the clouds. These things are only things attributed to God. So people like, especially Muslims who love to say that, oh, he never claimed to be God and worship me. Well, do you read the Bible? I mean, he got accused of blasphemy countless times. Even on when he was on the cross, they said, oh, see, he claimed to be the son of God. Uh, you know, the, the apostles believed that he was God, not just a prophet, not just a very special created being. The apostles believed that he was God. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10.4, they attributed the rock in the wilderness to Christ. Christ was that rock that led them in the wilderness. And so all, the book of Hebrews is an entire hall of typology where the writer is trying to communicate to the Hebrews, listen, all those shadows and types in the Old Testament, that was Jesus. Now he's he's the one who's fulfilled it. And so it's like they they saw the truth. They didn't see Jesus as a some sort of specialized prophet, which is nonsense. But again, it go to me first and foremost. It's all about the atonement. If you understand what the atonement is, you can't have a created being be sacrificed. That's the whole point. God had to be sacrificed, which is crazy to think if that's the price for our lives. But you know, God had to be sacrificed in order for the atonement to be effective. So yeah. So let's hone in on that real quick and answer specifically as to how, because of the incarnation, we see all of it tied to the atonement. We see why it needs to happen. Let's talk specifically as far as why the incarnation is a great doctrine to fall back on to support eternal security. What would you say about that? So how does incarnation support eternal security? Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, first and foremost, um, we are being conformed to the image of Christ, right? Romans 8, 29. And so if the plan all along was for the Spirit to inhabit us and to be conformed to the, to the template that Christ set, then studying the incarnation, studying Christ's life for clues as to our future destiny is the key. Now, we know first and foremost that Christ was raised from the dead. <laughs> so God did not abandon him, right? God did not uh, leave him in the belly of the, of, the, of the fish. And so we know from that, just from that, that God will deliver his promises to those who he's promised to save. Now, again, this is a fine line because it's not our job to judge who is saved and who isn't. I don't believe in that. I don't believe it's our job to say, see, I'm elect. <laughs> and they're not, or whatever. I don't think that at all. Um, however, in our own walk with God, it's a, it's a point of assurance of salvation to know that, hey, God is going to fulfill his promises. And if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, and you truly have a relationship with Christ, then you know that what he did for Christ, he's going to do for you, meaning give you eternal life. And so that's where the eternal security bit comes in. But you know, more on that is that Christ lived in total submission to the Father when he was on earth. You look at the parables. Um, I talked a lot about the parables in my series. I talked about predestination in Christ's life. There's so many verses where it's obvious he knew his future. He knew what was going to happen. There was, a, there was a script, in a sense, for him to follow, to go through. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have feelings, that he didn't have genuine emotions, that he didn't live moment by moment. 
And so this is the mystery that we live in. You know, Christ's life proves that there's predestination. And because we're being conformed to that life, it proves that we, you know, we have a predestined life as the elect. However, that doesn't mean that we aren't experiencing choices, that we're not living moment by moment, that life isn't a surprise. Those things are true as well. We're participating in life. And so it's it's this beautiful duality of, of on one side, it's taken care of, God's got you. On the other side, it's a surprise. Go for it. You know, and I think this is where a lot of people get mixed up because they say, Well, you see, I'm making choices, so I have to have free will. It's like, well, do you know where your belief in free will comes from? It comes from the enlightenment. And the enlightenment is Luciferian. It's it's all about you being your own God and saving yourself and you know, humanist philosophy, which is all about humanity saving itself. All of that goes back to the very beginning the Garden of Eden, where Satan said, you don't need God. You will not die. You can choose what's good for your life. It's all about you. You can choose. The personal growth development movement, the the New Age movement, it's all Garden of Eden. It's the same stuff. It's just you can be your own God. And I believe that libertarian free will is essential to this satanic matrix because people have made their free will into an idol. You know, the, the gospel and all this stuff with predestination, it's very offensive. <laughs> it's offensive and humbling because you don't have to, you can't take any credit for anything. It's all God. And people don't like that. People don't like, oh, how can it be, how can God determine things for me? Well, first off, God's perfect. I, I'm excited to know that God has predestined my life and he has a special role for me to fulfill. I'm excited to know even more that he's predestined eternity and in an, an internal way of discovering him in a unique way through through my own life, just like you have with your own life. And we're all predestined to, to discover him in, an, in a unique way through the, through the life and the skills that he's given us. I mean, that's profound to me. I want to know what a perfect being has determined for me. I don't want to think that I know better than that. And so I don't see the problem. But again, it, it's a problem if you have an ego about it, right? It's, oh, God's taken away something from me. I, you know, I, I, I where's my choice? Well, you, you are making choices, but where do you draw the line? It's just like, where do we draw the line between Christ being fully human and fully God? There is no line, you know? And, and as soon as you try it, when you try to draw the line between here's my free will and here's God's sovereignty, inevitably you put God in a box. Just like there's a line on this little video that you and I are talking, you see there's a line between you and me. As soon as you draw the line, what's it do? It creates two boxes. And so the same is with with this whole talk about free will and sovereignty. Yes, God is completely sovereign. He's predestined everything. Yes, we are experiencing choices. We're going moment by moment in life. You don't know your future. You participate and you make choices and you go and you do things. Those are both true. But I don't know where the line is, and I don't think there is a line. And that's the mystery. That's the beauty of it. So, But we have eternal security because Christ proved that, because God redeemed him, and he's the template for us. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. So, Yeah, and again, I agree completely. I think libertarian free will, a distinction has to be made between that 
in um, regardless Calvinist or non-Calvinist of your freedom of choice. I think if you hold to the doctrine of eternal security, you cannot hold to libertarian free will. And I do think libertarian free will is a very dangerous doctrine and very new age. Uh, it's all about taking control of your own destiny. Um, but, yep. you know, some reformed theologian actually many reformed theologians and i believe kind of based off what you're saying and also something that i heard in the series uh tutor is you know when that redemptive work is done it creates that will in you that allows you as you said to work out your salvation with fear and trembling so you know there is that choice do i walk after the spirit or walk after the flesh as paul talks about so that how would you describe that difference between um, the choice to um, walk in your spiritual maturity, say yes or no to God in this moment, be obedient or disobedient in this moment, evangelize or ignore in this moment, and what others would call libertarian free will? Well, you know, my show is called The Dance of Life. <laughs> And I think that's really what it boils down to is it's a dance. When you, if you've ever gone dancing, and I mean partner dancing, it's a constant exchange. And most of the time, you know, guys are leaders, but, you know, we have to learn how to follow too. And, and I've certainly had a lot of experience teaching people how to dance. But to me, it's given me a priceless view on our relationship with God. You know, God is the ultimate leader. He's the DJ. He knows the music. You know, he knows everything. And he will lead you. He will lead you. And of course, there's a part for you to play. Just because there's choreography that's been predetermined doesn't mean that you don't have to play that part out. You know, like when you if you plan a party that you you want to invite a bunch of your friends to, you still have to have the party. You you may have a plan about all the decoration and where you're going to put it, and you can go 100% as you planned it, but you still have to have the party. And it's the same way here. You know, God is given us a beautiful choreography to discover him and to discover his plan for us. But we still have to dance. And dancing requires constant communication between partners. And that's that's the relationship that God wants. God wants a very intimate dance with us. And that dance is primarily done through prayer and and listening. You know, we we are in a society that is encouraging us to plan five, ten years ahead and do all these things. But it's nonsense because ultimately all you can do, the best you can do is live one day at a time. Now, of course, you should have some plans. You know, I have certain plans, but I don't, I used to plan so much. And nowadays I don't plan nearly as much. I just, every time I, I find myself planning too much, God always has something that just, <laughs> he throws a little wild card in there to like humble me a little bit or to, to get me back down to earth because ultimately the best we can do is live one day at a time. You don't know if you're going to die tomorrow. You really don't. And it's up to God, really. So the best we can do is live one day at a time, pray throughout the throughout the day, um, check in with God, and follow the leads, follow the promptings. That's that's the dance of life to me. That's the, the whole reason why I call it the dance of life. And it's really the dance of a Christian life. It's It's the you know, active dynamic relationship we have with God where we're checking in and engaging in this mystery, this mystery of a predestined life at the same time it's something that we experience moment by moment. 
it's a mystery and it's a dance to me it's a dance so that's how absolutely um so kind of switching over from the incarnation to the godhead um first of all let's go ahead for those i mean most orthodox christian i mean all orthodox christians know and believe in the doctrine of the godhead for those who are stumbling upon uh and is not familiar with the godhead or the trinity what exactly is that doctrine well the godhead is is a way to describe god as one god there's only one god but there are three divine persons and they exist they coexist they're all equal it's not like one third of a god it's not one god morphing into jesus then he's morphing into the father then he's morphing into the holy spirit it's three persons but one god and so that's the doctrine of the trinity and that's it's hard for us to understand that it's hard for us to understand that because you know we don't have anything that can we don't even have two persons and one you know i mean you might have multiple personalities but even then they're not coexisting at the same time they're either you know one or the other and so we don't have any physical way of understanding that but again it's it's like everything else you know just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not the truth. You know, how, how could you possibly understand God? You know, God has done an amazing job at translating himself into Jesus Christ so that we could have a point of reference. But the God that is self-existing, beyond time and space, omniscient, omnipresent, you know, go on with the qualities, how can we possibly understand that God? And so people who reject the Trinity First off, there's a lot of scriptural support for it, but never mind that. Like, and yet you accept all these other qualities about God. So why can't he be a plural being? It's one God, three persons. And so that's what scripture tells us. And in the in the words of David Wood in one of his um, talks on this, you know, we weren't, we didn't make up the Trinity. We were forced into it by the Godhead. You know, the, the Godhead forced us into the Trinity. And if you look at scripture, the Old Testament is, full of very confusing things where you have the angel of the Lord, you have the spirit of God, you have, you know, God, the father, obviously you have just different shadows of things that seem like, man, that's, that's really strange. It's not very straightforward. You know, you have Elohim, which is a plural of the word El of of God. And so you have all these strange things. And then in the new Testament, it's revealed. You have Jesus you have the Father, and then you have the Holy Spirit. And there's so many verses where the Holy Spirit is a personal being. You know, he can he can be grieved. He can convict you of righteousness. He has a will. An impersonal force doesn't have those qualities. It, it, he's a personal being. And so you are left with this conclusion that there are three persons. But obviously there's not more than one God. We know that. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity naturally emerged and just for something to be written down like in the council of nicaea doesn't mean that it started there that's nonsense that the people who believe the trinity was started in the council of nicaea or some catholic invention that's not true at all i mean you haven't studied the bible you look at you know it's like saying well you know the bible doesn't have doesn't say pornography so it must not be a sin it must not be a sin to look at pornography because it doesn't say it in the bible well 
how do you know that pornography is a sin? Well, because we're told not to lust. It's, it's the equivalent to adultery. So you use the brain that God gave you and you infer that pornography has to deal with lust. Pretty simple. And so the same is with something much more advanced, which is the Trinity. You look at the types and shadows in the Old Testament where you have clearly an embodiment of God and then you have sort of a transcendent God. Then you have the spirit who's also seems to have some sort of personal qualities, like it can be grieved. Well, a force can't be grieved. A human being is grieved, you know? And so then you have more of that in the New Testament. And obviously that's where the Trinity comes from. It's not something that was invented. It's not pagan because first off, in order to say that the Trinity is pagan, you have to prove archeologically that some pagan cultures, at least one, believed in one God coexisting as three persons. Now they had triads of gods, mm. like you know uh, Ishtar, and I forget all the different ones, but fertility gods and you know whatever mm -hmm. Sumerian gods. They had triads of gods, but those were three gods. They never. Mm. There's never. There's never in history a, a true depiction of the Trinity, which is one God as three divine persons coexisting, co-equal. There's never in history a, a teaching like that. And so to say that it's pagan is is just nonsense because, first off, we can borrow things and they're not pagan. El was the Canaanite supreme god. The Jews didn't, the Hebrews didn't have a word for God, so they used that word. They used El, Elohim, El Shaddai. El is a Canaanite god, but they used it for God. <gasps> Does that make God pagan? No doesn't make God pagan. It just means they used a word that they didn't have to help them with their understanding. So, you know, borrowing things, you know, science uses Latin. Latin is a dead language. <laughs> Why? Because that's just how it evolved. It's, it's all about evolution. And so evolving language, evolving culture, evolving notions, that doesn't mean that it's pagan. It just means that certain things have influenced it or have have borrowed from, you know, like with, with um, again, with El, they used Elohim plural in the Bible. In Genesis, Elohim is plural. But the verb create, when God created the world, is singular. So did, did Moses make a mistake when he wrote the, the book of Genesis? Did he say plural God, singular created? Let us make man in our image? Like, Why? They must have knew something. And the, and the truth is that it seems that people like David, people like Moses, understood that God, there was something more to God than just, you know, one person. They understood that God was a triune being. Now, they didn't have maybe full revelation, and it wasn't intended by God to give full revelation to the Old Testament because, first and foremost, he was trying to cultivate people away from polytheism and so imagine if god had said you know we're actually three persons but it's one god people would have they would have not understood any of that they would have just gone into you know polytheism because that's what they knew they knew multiple gods so how does god who is a tri-personal being reveal himself to you gradually so that you understand you know it's like taking an infant and trying to teach them calculus you got to start with like blocks. Okay, one block plus another block is two blocks. <gasps> Magic, you know. So you you have to understand that God being transcendent 
and, and having qualities that we can't even understand, how much time and revelation is required for God to give us these baby steps to bring us to the point where we can even sort of conceptualize who he is. And so just because you can't understand the Trinity doesn't mean that you can say that it's pagan or that it's not biblically supported because neither of those are true. Yeah. And so I think one question that people often have when they're approaching, you know, Mormons or the JWs, they want to know, like, okay, where could I take them specifically to support triune being? Do you have any specific places that you go to specifically support the the triunity of God? Well, I mean, there's, there are quite a lot, you know, first off the baptism of Jesus. That's probably one of the best ones. Um, and then the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. Now, some people say that the scribes added the Father, Son, Holy Spirit after that and all this stuff. But you got to remember, scribes were very, to be a scribe was like a big deal, right? So to so jump to conclusions and say there's some conspiracy theory to add the Trinity, that's not understanding. Scribes were like under oath. I mean, they were, they had they had to have integrity. It was not that there was a conspiracy. They probably saw, okay, they knew that the early church believed in the Trinity. So this makes sense here sometimes in these, in the same thing with like Psalm 22, this reminds me of uh, the whole debate around like a lion or, you know, pierce my hands and my feet. And so the Jews say that the Christians are adding pierce my hands and my feet. It's actually like a lion, but the people who have studied this in depth, it's really the scribes. There's been no conspiracy. The scribes were just trying to read what they saw. They saw a lion, so they, you know, they're trying to have integrity with the text. And even then, it matches Jesus's life perfectly because we know Satan is a lion, and lions pierce your feet with their teeth. So either way, you see God's providence uh, accounts for that. But I would say the baptism of Jesus. I would say um, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to bless to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, besides that, you know, there, there are other texts in the Old Testament where, again, angel of the Lord, there's a whole study on these things, um, looking at Genesis, the plurality of God, when he says, let us make man in our image, when Elohim created, singular verb with plural noun. Um, you know, you have the patriarchs uh, equating the angel of the Lord to God himself, like in Genesis 48, uh, 15 through 16, where I believe um, uh, Jacob blesses Joseph. And he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. So he's blessing Joseph and he equates the God who appeared to him and the God who's been doing all these different things to the angel. Now the angel doesn't mean angel like you and I know angel because angel just means messenger in the Bible. It's just malak. It's just a messenger. And so it doesn't have to do anything with ontology. This is an important distinction. There's ontology and there's economy. Economy is function and things that a person does. Ontology is their nature. And so a lot of people get mixed up with that. That's why they, they have a hard time with the Trinity. Well, all the persons have the same ontology. Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. They're all Yahweh. Yahweh is Yahweh. But economy 
there's different economy. The Spirit has different roles than Christ does. Christ has different roles than the Father does. Father sends the Spirit. Father sends Christ. Father is the, the, the supreme authority, but that doesn't mean he's more God than Jesus is God. They're all equally God, but they have different roles, and they're all of one mind. And so this is, again, it's hard for us to understand, but it's like, it's like this. Imagine if you're <laughs> in a 2D world, and you have just a, a little paper, and, and you're a little 2D character in that world. If I take a cube and I pass it through that 2D plane, you're going to experience that cube as a square. But is that cube a square or is it a cube? It's a cube. Now, you can't even fathom what a cube looks like because you live in a 2D world. So you see it as a square. And that's what God did for us through the incarnation. You know, he's, I mean, again, it's a limited example, but let's say he's the cube and he translated himself to a square so that we could experience him in our dimension. But to understand the the cube, it's it's almost impossible. And so we, we can wrestle with it in our minds, and it's designed that way. It's designed that way so that we, imagine if you could understand God, if you could know everything about God. He wouldn't be God. You see? And so the whole point is, he's given us certain things to wrestle with that really in the end just produce more awe and fear and respect and love and appreciation. So the Trinity is one of those things. Oh, wow. Tito, there's so many post interview questions or post interview conversations we have to have. I, um, oh man, what was it? You said something in there. I, it'll come back to me. I just, when you said, oh, oh, the, uh, when you were quoting the Psalm and, oh, I got so much to tell you about that. Like with the whole, what they say was added to the piercing the hands and feet because it's specifically in the Septuagint. So I have so much to tell you uh, yeah. post interview, and I can't wait to hear what you had to tell me about uh, conditional immortality. But uh, one of my favorite parts of uh, this conversation I was really looking forward to and the part that I think a lot of people are going to love is just exactly what happens within the Godhead that allows us to be eternally secure. And like you said, it's so, I tried drawing a picture <laughs> to like explain it to people. It's just, it's, it's so awesome. And when you realize it, it's like, Oh, that's why it has nothing to do with me. So can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's economy and ontology. Ontology is nature of being and all three persons in the Godhead are equal. They're all God. On economy, though, they, they each have different roles. Um, Christ is the high priest who died. He sacrificed his blood. He atoned for us, and he's interceding for us. The Father is the one who predestined everything. He's the one who draws us to Christ. He's, he's the one overseeing reality, right? And then you have the Spirit who sanctifies us, who convicts us of righteousness. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So each person is intertwined with your salvation. That's why, again, I think that if you think that your free will can somehow trump all the ongoing actions, past, present, and future of the Trinity, it's not a correct view of salvation. The Father predestined, which is the past. Christ atoned, which is technically the past as well, but he's also interceding, which is the present 
right? And then the, the Spirit is convicting us of righteousness and sanctifying us. That's the present. And we're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the future. Christ is going to return. That's the future. All these things are wrapping us up in eternal security. You, you can't cancel the action of the Trinity. And so that's why, um, ultimately, I, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. It's not consistent with what the Trinity is doing. So, Yeah, and I think the big mind-blowing fact for me was realizing that God's promise was always made to his seed, singular seed, Jesus, and placing our faith in that um, atonement, in the gospel message, his life, death, burial, resurrection, and dwells us with the Holy Spirit, who then baptizes us into the body of Christ. And this is why we're co-heirs, because now the promise that was made to the seed is now a promise made to us. And because we are in him, sealed in him, as you were talking about with the Holy Spirit, it's just, it's so amazing. And, you know, it's by the very nature of God that we are saved. So that's why it's like, we have to understand this. We can't deny it. And it's uh, uh, right there is kind of the obvious reason why a lot of these anti-Trinitarian cults do deny even eternal security because they don't even understand the nature of their God. Well, they're worshiping a false God, but that's, it's just so like, ah, I love it. (laughs) Um, The truth is wonderful. It is. It is. Um, So we've been talking about it continuously about the work of God and how it's his work in us, not our own work. And so being that this is a work of God, why are there people who feel their disobedience or their choices can somehow overthrow the work of God? Well, I think that it's just that societal programming, you know, we've all been programmed that it's, it's this free will illusion that it's up to you to take responsibility and do things. And therefore, if it's up to you, guess what? It's also your fault. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean you don't have responsibility if there's predestination, but it just, you know, we get into our own heads, especially here in the States where it's very much about free will and, you know, being, again, responsible. And and there's, there's a way to be responsible and still include predestination. But there's a way to believe that you're the one that's responsible in the sense that you're replacing Christ's work on the cross. Like if if you think you can lose your salvation, you're not trusting in the perfect work of Christ. The whole point of the relationship or of that effort was to, to set up a relationship of trust. And trust is an uncomfortable thing. It's It's a feeling of, you know, it's like a trust fall when you fall back and somebody's got you. Well, the trust fall doesn't begin until your weight is over your heels and you're starting to fall back. That's when the trust begins. Up until that point, you're not trusting anybody but yourself. You're on the ground, you know, you're standing up. But as soon as you start falling, that's when trust begins. And the same thing is with this. If you believe you can lo- lose your salvation, it's up to you to maintain your salvation and therefore you're relying on yourself. It doesn't matter that you think God is giving you some grace. It doesn't matter if you think God is kind of helping too. It's the gospel is absolute. It's God is doing the work. Wake up to that fact. And if you're elect, you will wake up. You will have a change of heart when you hear the gospel. Eventually, it might take a couple times, but God's work, He's the author and finisher. So He will finish what He started in you. And 
that's a beautiful thing. It's waking up to this beautiful thing that a perfect being is doing. You are in life. You've been given life. Thank God that you are aware of these things. You know, the, the fact that you have a relationship with Christ is, you know, what, 10% of the world right now or something? I mean, not that many people have a genuine relationship with Christ. And so that's the thing to be grateful for. And waking up to that fact is just profound. It's not something that we could have come to on our own, let alone maintain. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Yeah, that's- absolutely. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote about, like, if he could lose salvation, he'd lose it like a thousand times a day. But... Yeah. um one thing that I always point out to my viewers is the fact that salvation, and this is the part that so many people overlook, is for the glory of God. It's the declaration of his victory over that soul. What would you say about that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the salvation as a work of God is unique to God. It is his signature. That's why all these other religions, doesn't matter what they are, even if it's New Age, personal growth, Catholicism, they all have the devil's signature on it, which is that you can be your own God, that you have to be your own God, that it's up to you to choose between good and evil. You got to make it. You see, that's the lie from the Garden of Eden. And so you can't counterfeit the gospel. Satan has tried, but you see, every counterfeit gospel goes back to the free will thing. The prosperity gospel, what do you got to do? You got to do your affirmations so God can bless you. The tolerance gospel or the social justice gospel pushed by the Pope. You got to do all these things, you know, to save the environment, (laughs) you know? So it always comes back to free will when they try to counterfeit the gospel because they can't counterfeit the truth. The, The real truth is unique to God. It's predestination. It's, you know, election. It's God is doing the work. Because it all points back to God. There's nothing that points to us at all. And that's why God gets the glory. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So for those who don't hold or believe in the doctrine of eternal security, how would you go about proving the doctrine is biblically sound? Well, that's a good question. I mean, because there's a long answer, and I guess there's a a short answer. (laughs) I'm keen for either. We the, love details over here. <laughs> the The short answer would be, I dare you to trust Christ fully and see what happens. Trust trust the Lord that he's going to redeem, redeem you and see what happens. You know, do you really think you're going to be left behind? And if that's the case, are you letting the Holy Spirit convict you of righteousness? One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of righteousness. What does that mean? It's not convicting you of guilt. It's convicting you that you've been bought for a price and that you are righteous in the eyes of the Father. That's a big deal. I mean, we can't even conceive of that, but it's the truth. That's what the Scripture says. The Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of God's promise that he's going to deliver his interrogant. Do you think that God's going to give you like money down? I hate to compare the spirit to money, but it's just that, you know, like when you buy a house, you put money down. That's a down payment. That's what the apostles wrote about with the spirit. The spirit is the down payment. Like, think about that. Do you think God who has a perfect word and who was never going to go back on his word, the fact that he gave you a change of heart, 
that is not just like, okay, now go. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but you better not lose it. Or here you go. This is proof that you are saved and I'm going to deliver you and give you eternal life, despite all the things that are going through your head. In the Bible, if you look at most every leader in the Bible, God used them on purpose because each of them has struggled with doubt, with fear, with anxiety. If God had responded to those people, according to how people believe with with losing your salvation, nothing would have ever gotten done. Moses denied God five times. He's famous for this. He said, go find somebody else. I'm not qualified. No, I, I don't, you know. Can you imagine? Literally, he's like in front of the burning bush. And he's like, no, I'm good. <laughs> so imagine if 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 you could lose your salvation. If that's not an example, like God could have said, okay, I guess you've used your free will, so let me find somebody else. Mm. If God had actually operated in history according to what these people believe, nothing would have ever gotten done. The whole point, and it's to God's glory, is that he can raise people from the dead. Now, that could be life or that could be from the death of sin. Moses, even when faced with God, supernaturally, denied him five times. And so what does that tell you? That tells you that it takes an irresistible force of God to change the human heart. And that's what happened. You look at the apostles. Peter denied Christ three times, even after living with him for three years. The apostles ran away. It's like John when he got crucified. Um, Jeremiah said he was too young when God approached him, literally supernaturally, to be a prophet. He's like, no, find somebody else. I'm too young. (laughs) I don't know how to speak. Um, You know, Saul failed so many times. We talked about that. David doubted God. He had somebody murdered so he could sleep with their wife. I mean, if if you could lose your salvation, you would. But the whole point of these examples throughout history, and I think one of the points is that God used them to, to show us later generations who he is, that it doesn't matter how wicked of a heart you are. Look at Paul. He was a murderer and a persecutor. Then he became the greatest evangelist. I think God delights in showing his glory by reversing what Satan inverted. You see, that's, that's that's where Satan has a purpose in all this, and that as evil as the devil is, everything will glorify God, because this is the genius of God. You know, the devil really inverted the world, but God, by inverting it back, proves who he is. He brings life to the to the dead. And so that's the whole point, is that you can't lose your salvation, because if you could, you would. And what does that say about God? You have to ask yourself, everything that you believe, what does it say about God? Mm-hmm. If you could lose your salvation, it says that God doesn't have the power to keep you saved. But that's not what history says. It, it, it's not at all what history shows. Those people had a will. They had a, you know, desires. They had certain things they did. But they had no choice as to whether they were going to serve God or not. If God had chosen to, to, to have Moses serve him or to carry out his will— Moses had no choice in the matter to, to, to say no. Now, he obviously demonstrated that he wrestled with God. He doubted God, but God overcame him in the end, and that's the point. And that's why you can't lose your salvation, because God is the one doing the work, and his work is perfect. So, Yeah, yeah, I love that. And so there are some proof texts that people will go to to say that a Christian can lose their 
salvation. How would you respond to that? Yeah. Um, there's a whole episode in my series at the end where I talk about challenge verses and I break it down into a few categories and ultimately it's just not understanding the context of these verses. That's really what it comes down to because Mm -hmm. most of the verses are dealing with false converts. People like who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Some people losing their salvation. It's people who are never saved to begin with, who are pretending to be saved to profit from the church. There's a lot of false converts throughout history. And Christ is warning us with these stories and parables too. There's a lot of parables about false converts to test ourselves, to see if our own faith is genuine. That's that's what it's about. And the elect will persevere. But again, it's, you know, just because that there's an example that's urging you to test yourself doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. It's just it's just there to remind you know, it's like the the reprobate, the people who God didn't choose to save. The purpose they have in life is to show God's wrath. God's not going to show his wrath to the people he's chosen to give to Christ. Those people are saved. They're special people. So how are you going to know that God is the ultimate power and the creator of the universe? He can't destroy the elect because they're chosen. He's not going to show wrath to them. So you need evil people who he's going to pass over. Those evil people, he got to judge and punish and show his justice and all these things that we know now say, oh man, like there is an aspect of God that we need to fear because he is the alpha and the omega. He's the ultimate power. But you wouldn't know that if it wasn't for all the evil people that he had to judge. And so, you know, in the same way, the false converts are there to to kind of make you test yourself and, and to urge you to continue to work out your salvation. It doesn't mean work for your salvation. It means embrace the gift you've been given. And that's another point is that a lot of these verses that talk about seemingly works, um, you know, that they, they, they're talking about assurance of salvation. So there's a difference between having eternal security and assurance of salvation. One of those is that we have eternal security, but assurance of salvation is something that we work on. It's things that we, you know, do every day, like praying, doing good works, going have fellowship with other people. These things remind us that we're, yeah, I am a Christian. Like, am I, I'm saying something, I'm a Christian, but then what am I doing? Am I, are my actions lining up with my, with my words? And it doesn't mean that you're not saved because a lot of us go through seasons where we stop praying as much as we should, or we stop going to church, or we, you know, we, we get a little more stingy. Maybe there's economic things that happen to us. And so we don't, give as much as we used to. You know, we go through these things. But again, those are just there as reference points to encourage you to live an increasingly bolder and bolder faith. They're not telling you that you need to work for your salvation. Now, another thing is a lot of these verses are taken from Hebrews where, again, it's just so taken out of context, where, you know, like Hebrews 6, 4 through 9, where it's like it's impossible to be reconciled after you have tasted the heavenly gifts and all these other things. Uh, or Galatians 5, 4, where he says, you know, you've departed from grace. These things are so taken out of context. In the Hebrews, it's talking about legalists or people on the fence, Hebrews on the fence. So the, the audience are people who are trying to stick to the sacrificial system. Same with Galatians, too. They're trying to add works to their grace. And so when Paul says you're departing from grace— doesn't mean you're losing your salvation. It means your your focus is not 
on on the gospel anymore. You're, you're, you're losing yourself. And with the Hebrews, probably Paul wrote the Hebrews, but whoever wrote the Hebrews, when it talks about all these things about it's impossible or going on sin, sinning willfully, it's all about the gospel. It's about the sin of unbelief. And it's the entire book of Hebrews is how Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament, how he's the he's the better option. You know, you 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 hanging on to this old system that doesn't it can't redeem you. You know, once you've seen all these things, it's impossible to, you know, like with the Pharisees, for example, they they were the most knowledgeable group that should have recognized the Messiah, but they didn't. And so what that the Hebrews 6, 4 through 9, what it's talking about, it's not about, oh, you taste the heavenly gifts, you had you were saved, and now you're not saved anymore. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about it's saying, hey, Hebrews, the people I'm writing to, don't be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something you can do and lose your salvation. It's talking about the reprobate, the people who we're destined to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to resist the Holy Spirit, so that God's judgment could be shown on them. So it's talking like saying, hey, again, test yourself. Don't be like the Pharisees who revealed all the truth in the Torah, and yet they, they refused the truth when it was right in front of them. Don't be like that. It's a warning. It's not, hey, you're going to have salvation, and then you can lose it. It's not at all what these are saying. So context is the key, as always. And all the challenge verses that come up against eternal security, they're very often just taken out of context or just misunderstood. Like with Judas too, Judas is a great example. Again, people assume that he was saved based on his works, but Judas was never saved. That's the point. He had he had to not be saved in order for him to do what he had to do. God invited a reprobate into his circle so that Satan's hand would be played and he would just do what he had to do. So Jesus knew that he would betray him. And of course, you know, your actions don't save you. So J Judas is one of those, Lord, Lord, do we not do many mighty works in him? Yeah, Judas cast out devils. He was part of the apostles. But your works don't save you. It's it's God's work that saves you. And it's very clear that Judas was never saved. Christ knew that he was going to betray him. That means that that was predestined. So he predestined Judas to betray him. What else did Judas do? He killed himself without repenting. That was predestined because Judas was never saved to begin with. And, you know, some people may not like that, but again, it's not up to us to judge who's saved and who's not. If somebody in your life has killed themselves, that doesn't mean they're necessarily not saved. We don't know. There's plenty of Christians who deal with, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, you know, God forbid, but we don't know who's saved. God is going to show mercy on who he's going to show mercy. But as far as our own journey, these things are designed to, on one hand, encourage us. Like you have all those passages about like Romans 8, 39, about nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then you have passages that are designed to kind of push you a little bit. They're designed to, to again, it's the duality, the mystery of predestination and living life moment by moment. The Bible addresses both of those perspectives. And I think where the confusion is, is that people take one of those perspectives and they say, well, see, you can lose yourself. That's not true. That You're not reading it in context. The Bible is trying to keep you on the middle path. Don't go to the right, go to the left. It's, you know, don't get too comfortable with your salvation in the sense that it's a license to sin. That's not what that is. But at the same time, remember that you're righteous. 
you know, so it's, it's this dance again, to me, it's a dance between these two things. So, yeah. Ah, so much good little nuggets in there. I, I'm so happy to hear how you break down Hebrews. That's exactly how I, I break it down. That's how it's clearly read. Um, it's just awesome. I'm so happy to hear you give all those little insights. And then also just some of the other bits in there. The one thing I want to make sure that when I follow up with you after this to send you is the breakdown of the examine yourself to see if you're in the faith first because that's actually one of the critical yeah. verses that led me out of my reform view so i'm interested to get your take on that but the one thing that really stuck out to me and i extremely appreciated and i'm going to uh divulge a little bit of myself to you here tutor is when you talked about christians committing suicide um it is a tragedy it does happen though because as somebody who has struggled greatly with mental health very early on in my 20s. I'm 31 now. Very early on in my 20s, I started experiencing um, mental health problems, which at the time was undiagnosed, but later uh, turned out to be a very aggressive form of bipolar disorder. And in that, I ended up uh, becoming suicidal myself and also developing a manic episode. And in that manic episode, there was a lot of paranoia. By the grace of God, I've not had to deal with this since then. Um, but there was a lot of paranoia, dissociation, and there was um, the inability to even know if me or my reality was real. And so with that came a lot of questions. And I think um, being able to speak to that because there were uh, reformed teachers at that time, and even non-reformed, honestly, that um, made it sound like I wasn't saved as a result of a mental illness. And looking back now, I think that's incredibly damaging. And I think that's a big reason why so many people um, have been hurt at the hand of reformed theology. So it's so awesome hearing you say that. Yeah, I I have uh, in my last book I go into detail about that. I again, it's do you focus on what God is doing or do you focus on what you're doing? It's very simple. If you focus on what you're doing, then yeah, you're going to find a million and one reasons why you're going to lose your salvation. But if you believe that God is sovereign and that He's beyond every material circumstance, then that's the gospel. That's why Christ overcame the world. He didn't overcome the world so that we could have bipolar later and then lose our salvation. Mm. He overcame the world, meaning everything possible that could ever happen in the world to influence your relationship with him. So yeah. that's the hope that we have as Christians. And to me, it's a shame that so many people are teaching against eternal security as if it's like, you know, I see these videos like refuted, you know, like why, why would you want to refute? I mean, you can't, but why would you want to argue against the greatest hope the Christians have, that's the whole point of the gospel, is that the world cannot, you know, uh, overcome you. It's Christ overcame the world, and through that, we are victors too. So, I don't know, it doesn't make any sense to me, but whatever. Uh, no, There's insane. a lot of nonsense these days. Yeah, and exactly like God knew like when he saved you were going to develop mental illness or whatever your foothold may be. And I want to ask you about that as we're wrapping up here real quick, Tudor. But yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. Like 
uh, for example, like the type of language as I'm sitting in a hospital, losing my mind and not understanding what's happening. The only advice that I'm getting is don't kill yourself because you're going to go to hell. And I'm like, <laughs> and it, you know, obviously Christians should not kill themselves. And I, there was part of me that didn't want to, but there was part of me that felt like I had no choice. That is mental illness. And the church has to do a better job at um, being there for people with mental illness without causing Absolutely. them to stumble. Yeah. And so saying all that, Tudor, what um, would you leave these people with who... Um, are just struggling with footholds in their life, whether it be mental illness, whether it be a foothold of sin, whether it be a foothold of trauma, whether it be a foothold of abusive or toxic family situations, what is the final thing that you would leave people with who are in these seasons of life that are struggling to hold to eternal security, but at the same time, they're not seeing the change that others are saying they should have by now. Well, you know, God's timing is always at odds with our timing because we, we don't have the full picture and we always try to plan our lives ahead and God's plan is always different. <laughs> I could have never predicted where I am today, but in the end, it's good. And it is... You know, there is predestination, there is election, there's eternal security, but we have responsibility to engage with the dance. We have, we have responsibility to follow the choreography. And what that looks like is reading the Bible. You know, go to Romans. Romans is a great book. Romans 8, 38 through 39. That tells you right there how we have eternal security. But, you know, pray, make a habit of prayer. I've done a lot of talks and things on on these types of things. It's just having it, the basics, man. It's just having the, the habit of prayer every day, multiple times throughout the day, um, you know, trying to have fellowship with other Christians, whether that's a church or, you know, just talking to other Christians, talk groups, whatever it is, um, using your gifts. Most of the time when we feel too depressed about our lives or we feel, you know, like absorbed in all the things that are going on, it's because we have, there's a quote by Gandhi, I believe, now, you know, Gandhi's pagan, but hey, I think the information's good. And he said something like this, we can lose ourselves in the service of others. Wow. And and that's a very poignant point, because I think the gospel teaches that too, ultimately, is get over yourself, you know, help help your neighbor. And when you can activate your gifts, the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given each of us, and put them to use for your fellow man, you're you're going to feel more in tune with your eternal security. That's the whole point of Philippians 2.12, of work out your salvation. It's not up to you to work your salvation. Christ already did that. But it's up to you to embrace the gifts that God has given you. God has given you so many gifts. And even your trauma and your pain is a great gift because that wound opens the door to new perspectives that only you have and that you can help other people going through those perspectives. And so that's why it's a gift in the end. And God gave you that gift to help other people and to share and to experience God in a unique way. And so ultimately, whenever we're feeling down on ourselves, it's because we aren't embracing these things as much as we should. And it's it's just a matter of building the habits. Pray every day, 
make sure you eat healthy too. That's important. That's a whole nother talk, but um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of relationship between depression and your nutrition, you know, especially yeah. gut health. But um, other than that, you know, having fellowship with Christians, helping the poor, if you can, helping other people do putting your service, your gifts to service, having fellowship, you know, for me, again, it's, I observe the Sabbath. I think that's helped me, my mental health quite a bit because it's the end of the week. It helps to reset everything. I can check out, focus on God and refresh, you know, rather than just spinning in my own little wheel. Uh, it's been incredibly good for my mental health. And so those things are very simple. They're the basics that the Bible teaches. And a lot of times when we feel you know, confused or lost. It's just, we, we've just lost touch with what the Bible teaches. So get back to reading scripture, get back to doing those things. Again, you're not saved by doing those things, but you're embracing the gift you've been given so that you can experience it. God wants you to live a life of pleasure, not of low level pleasures, but of high level pleasures, of serving others, of, of worshiping him, of having faith when you're full of doubt, of having hope when you're full of darkness. Those are high pleasures, and God wants that pleasurable life for you. But in order to do that, um, it, it does take work. And not that, again, you're saved by the work, but that's what working out your salvation means. It means it's a process. Imagine, to go from where we are now as totally depraved sinners to the image of Christ, that's going to take a lot of work. And it's work that God is overseeing, first and foremost. So don't be um, don't try to fill his shoes, but at the same time, it's also work that we have to do as well is participate. Participation and predestination go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. And that's the great mystery that we are in. So yeah, participate. Yeah, I love that. And oh, I try to nail this home all the time because so many people who find themselves in these seasons, especially when they listen to these, some of these yin yangs on YouTube, it's like they get so scared to approach God or get in the word for themselves. That's exactly where the devil wants you and you have to do those things. So yeah, exactly. Oh, Great stuff, Tudor. So for those who are wanting, well, first of all, were there any final thoughts that you wanted to share before we wrap up? Um, no, if you can lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, let's just sum it up right Thank there. God that you can't. Thank God. That right. You can't. Praise God. So, Tudor, for those who are wanting to keep up with you, where can they do so? Also, can you drop the name of some of these books? Because I'm genuinely interested because I didn't know you authored some books. So. Yeah, I um, Well, I'm on Amazon. You can just look up my name. But um, the last book I just published is called The Way Home, How to Build a Habit of Prayer, Find Strength in Suffering, and Reconnect to Jesus Christ. Mm. That's, a, that's a pretty detailed book, and that's on Amazon. Um. I don't have an audiobook for it yet just because of my voice, but um, yeah. then there's another one before that, which I wrote called Don't Let the Devil Boil Your Frog. <laughs> and it's uh, it's a little more conspiracy oriented, but it's a, it's a fun book. It's more of a wake up kind of a book. But um, the last book was The Way Home. I think that's a, that's a good book. And yeah, people can stay in touch with me on my website, danceoflife.com. Yeah. And I'm actually, because um, right before this, we had to switch some stream stuff around, guys. I was trying to get a new software to work. So I'm going to be linking uh, those links below. And I'm also going to link those books uh, to Amazon Books so we can um, 
get those. But Tudor, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It was a great conversation. I appreciate you putting so much thought and encouragement into this. I really do pray that it will edify a lot of people. Yeah, me too. God bless. This, This was a lot of fun. I'm glad. I'm glad. And guys, if you could go ahead and give this video a like, and we'll be back Friday night with a Friday night live stream. But until then, take care and God bless. All right. Well, hey, I hope you enjoyed that interview between myself and Jordan from Revivalist for Christ podcast. I'll put a link for his channel in the description of this episode. But, you know, eternal security and salvation and all the things we talked about, the Trinity, these are such core concepts to walking a good Christian life, especially the concept of eternal security, of being secure in Christ's work on the cross for all of us. And that's something to take to the bank with you because we can't lose our salvation. I'm very passionate about that. So hopefully you learned something in this interview that uh, that will give you some encouragement, some strength on your walk forward, because certainly life is never short on challenges. So hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe for more content like this. And until next time, God bless.